All right, excited to continue our discussion of hair loss with you again today. We're gonna to be talking about the different interventions. So we talked about all the ways you can lose your hair. Uh, now we're gonna talk about all the ways you can save your hair. Mm -hmm. So I think a really good place to start off would be like, what are the most effective treatments? And this isn't perfect methodology because you're looking at the number of new hairs per centimeter squared which is going to greatly depend on how many hairs per square centimeter your baseline population has. Mm -hmm. If somebody is barely thinning, you know, they're going to have a lot stronger of a response, a greater number of hairs. Um, but that relative improvement, like if someone has, let's say, 200, 200 hairs per square centimeter and they have a 10% improvement, well, that's 20 more hairs per square centimeter. Mm -hmm. Not really going to be perceptible in that person. But if yep. someone has lost half of their hairs, they have 100 per square centimeter and they have, you know, 20% improvement is going to be 10 hairs, but, you know, 10 hairs for that person is not going to be significant of an improvement. Mm -hmm. So just something to bear in mind when we're looking at the data here and ordering these from most effective to least effective. I don't think there's any surprises here. Were you surprised by any of these results in terms of what was found to be, you know, most effective, least effective? I was not surprised by any of the results. I was surprised by some of the discussion that we can get into later. Uh, also, nice shirt without any planning. Um, regarding the uh, like efficacy of treatments, uh, that brings up a good point regarding selection bias and even the subjectivity of something like a Norwood scale. So I believe we will try to rank most of these interventions on the Norwood scale, Norwood zero being wonderful, Norwood 4 um, being not so much, and Norwood, I guess, 6 or 7. Hopefully, none of these treatments will rate that, um, but you never know. So um, it just goes to show that in one study to study, you can have two different clinicians rank someone differently on a Norwood scale. It's the same in a lot of uh, things in aesthetics. I believe Alec and I talked about this. So, um, you know, like the, the efficacy of a neuromodulator could be rated differently. Like one clinician could say it wore off then one clinician can say it wore off then. So um, that's something to keep in mind also when looking at systematic reviews and meta-analyses for these products. So with all that being said, shall we dive into the first one? Let's do it. So this was a paper, and this actually came out 2022, so this is fairly recent. Uh, and they looked at basically your very common treatments. So dutasteride, finasteride, minoxidil, um, and what works and what doesn't. And the most effective treatment was dutasteride, 0.5 milligrams per day. Mm -hmm. um, next up on the list was five milligrams per day of finasteride. Next up was five milligrams per day of oral minoxidil. So you kind of have your you know, top three there, which really it's like, you know, you pick two of them and hopefully it's not dutasteride and finasteride. Yeah. Although there was a case report that did publish that we came across. So that was interesting. But in any case, so, I mean, if you're looking at like the most aggressive hair loss regimen you can do with just these oral medications, mm -hmm. very minimal time commitment, um, but also it's going to be, you know, higher risk. And you're going to end up with daily dutasteride, half a milligram, daily minoxidil at five milligrams. And hopefully you're not going straight to five milligrams. <laughs> I, I think responsible clinicians are tapering people up so that they don't stand up and fall over or go to the gym and lift a weight and fall over yes. or get you know, five pounds of fluid around their ankles and say, what's going on here? Am I having heart failure? Mm -hmm. All these sorts of things. So I wasn't surprised to see that as the big three. Mm -hmm. um, 
below five milligrams of minoxidil, you have one milligram of finasteride, then the 5% topical minoxidil, which for some time now we've had some data showing that mm -hmm. oral minoxidil seems to be superior. Um, even in, I think, perfect compliance, I think that the oral is just going to be stronger yep. and you're just going to get that more consistent spike in the minoxidil sulfate, the active molecule. Mm -hmm. And then we have 2% minoxidil, which I believe it was 2 or 3% that was approved by the FDA back in the 1980s. So mm -hmm. it's been around for a long time and now you see people using even like 15% minoxidil, yep. but we don't have data from meta-analyses to pull for that yet. Mm -hmm. So hopefully those will be done in the future. I do encourage people to look at that. And then the very last thing we have is 0.25 milligrams of minoxidil orally per day. And that was found to be the least effective out of this particular lineup. So like I said, no surprises here. And that's kind of the, the top to bottom analysis. This would also be an efficacy tier list. So maybe YouTube videos do well if you have a tier list, right? So... Um, the top tier would be for efficacy, but not necessarily for the best choice for every patient. For that, you'd have to weigh the risks and the benefits. Yeah, we could probably make a meme out of it too. Yeah. All right. And then in treatments that are not necessarily mainstream or, or largely spoken about, there is neuromodulator, which mm -hmm. I know you discussed with our, our friend Alec McCarthy, who has you know been heavily involved in the research and talking to leading clinicians in this space. Uh, and this is the template here. So you know, basically you see exactly where you're putting these. Uh, in this case, it was five units of botulinum toxin. The brand they used was Botox, but you can certainly use your neuromodulator of choice because mm -hmm. the effect is gonna be the same. And we, t we hinted at the theory of this, right? So it's the scalp tension, it's higher in androgenic alopecia, and that's gonna deprive the hair follicles of blood flow oxygen, nutrients, mm -hmm. um, and increase that reactive oxygen species, you know, inflammation, which you know, we'll, we'll talk about as well. Fortunately, you don't have to massage your scalp for six hours a day for this to work. Yeah, or uh, apply some sort of gimmicky device that probably doesn't work. Mm -hmm. We also alluded to this in a previous podcast, but particle size of your neuromodulator does matter if you're going to microneedle it, but not if you're going to inject it like this. Yeah, if people are particularly interested in that, they could uh, check out the Alec McCarthy episode, which I found to be really interesting. Mm -hmm. So going down to see how well this works, there are progress photos. Here we can see what was labeled a excellent response. So, I mean, this is really significant hair yeah. growth. This was a single treatment and they go back six months later and that's when they're doing these follow-up photos. So, I mean, this would rival what someone who is a really good responder to finasteride or minoxidil my experience. Mm -hmm. And the time commitment is however long it takes to schedule the appointment, get these injections, you know, very minimal effort and non-hormonal, yep. yep. which is something that a lot of people are very interested in because they don't want to manipulate DHT and, you know, sort of open that you know, can of worms. You know, some mm -hmm. people feel very strongly about their DHT and, you know, there are non-hormonal options. And I think that's good for people now. Unfortunately, I doesn't always work. So we have the photo right below that where this person did not respond. Um, but this was, I think, five out of six or six out of seven did respond in this study. So basically, if someone has a higher scalp tension at baseline, I think they're much more likely to respond because then you're treating the underlying cause or at least a contributor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is another good example of publishing all your data. It's good that, you know, obviously they hypothesized here that it would work with many people, but it does not always work. 
Um, of course, the discussion regarding this is if you have less tense scalp muscles or less thick, less tight scalp muscles, less hypoxic tissue damage, less death of the follicle. On another note, I love how you said some people feel very strongly about their DHT. Um, their androgen receptor may feel more strongly or more weakly about it as well. <laughs> yeah, I think that's it's an interesting conversation and, and people have a lot of great questions about this area. Um, and, you know, there's also the subjective component to it, just like there's a subjective component to, you know, medicine and particularly in aesthetics, you know, you have clinical expertise and then there's, you know, objective and subjective that kind of are married there to create a truly individualized medicine plan. So mm -hmm. you know, everybody's a little bit different. And then one of the things that we hear people talk about is like, you know, okay, how long is this going to last? You know, Botox, probably people doing that every four months is probably as often as you would need to do that. And I know you and Dr. McCarthy, uh, PhD, discussed ways to extend the duration of the toxins so people yes. can get a little more bang for their buck. So again, check out that podcast. But we have some long-term follow-up studies now. So this is one with um, minoxidil. And this was actually just the 2 to 3%, which I thought was particularly impressive because mm -hmm. everybody's using 5% now. Even, you know, women are using 5%. Dermatologists will tell them, you know, don't waste your time with the 2%, 3%. It does work, but people want results faster and they want more potent results. And 5% is the way to get there. You know, you can have more side effects like you know, body hair growth and, you know, some fluid retention, even with a topical solution. I think that's important for people to remember. Yep. Is there an equitable dose for topical minoxidil and oral minoxidil? from a standpoint of like serum monoxidil levels or even serum prolactin levels? That's hard to say. I mean, you're, if you use one milliliter of 5% monoxidil, you're putting, you know, 50 milligrams of monoxidil on your head. So some of that does go systemic. I don't know what the blood levels exactly are. I'm, I'm sure that there's some data out there, but mm -hmm. I suspect that it's still, even if you're putting on a couple of milliliters of 15%, you're not going to get the same active levels of are the same levels of the active metabolite, the monoxidil sulfate, Correct. Um, which is actually also the blood pressure lowering component of that mm -hmm. medication. So I think that you're taking five milligrams once a day, you're gonna get a big spike. And I think that spike alone is enough to signal the hair follicles to shift into that antigen phase. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I guess we didn't even talk about, but monoxidil was originally a blood pressure medication. So you know, I, this is why it carries some of those, you know, cardiovascular side effects or mm -hmm. cardiovascular risk factors. So yep. there's people drinking minoxidil, liquid minoxidil and having palpitations, going to ERs. And I would strongly encourage people not to do that. Um, yes. If enough people do that, wind up in ERs, they may make it a prescription drug again because yeah. people would not be surprised to see. Yeah. Yeah. Of note, minoxidil can increase prolactin and yes, your sulfotransferase polymorphism or the activity of that enzyme uh, does likely affect, very likely affect response. So some people get that checked. Tretinoin can potentially help with that. Um, but uh, I think that's a good summary of minoxidil. Some people also ask, do I lose all of the progress that I gained on minoxidil after taking it for five or 10 years and having a good response? If I were to stop it, do I lose every bit of that? Yeah, and that's a good question. And you probably do lose most of that progress in terms of the actual, you know, 20 or 30% volume increase that you get. Um, 
there's a small chance that minoxidil may be playing a role in type 1 collagen deposition. So you have this type 1 collagen that gets inappropriately deposited, that formation is it's kind of dysregulated, and you get this scalp fibrosis in some of the more severe cases of androgenic alopecia. There's some thought that since minoxidil disrupts collagen production, and this is in vitro, so mm -hmm. we don't know if this is happening in somebody who's had a scalp biopsy would really, really be the only way to see this. Um, but some of the in vitro data supports that and is thought, well, maybe this is part of the positive effect. Maybe there is a little bit of a you know, prolonging of putting off the hair loss and you do get more blood flow. And you know, more blood flow, I think, probably has a small effect, but I don't think that you're going to um, buy yourself permanent ground on the minoxidil. And a lot of that volume increase is dependent upon being on the medication. Mm -hmm. So we talked about mechanism, uh, medication, as far as the oral doses, basically whatever the minimum effective dose someone needs is, is where I'm starting. Yep. We're certainly not starting off with five milligrams to give people lots of side effects and anxiety. So um, a, a smart taper up depending on the patient and depending on the degree of alopecia that they have. So where are they at on that Norwood scale? Mm -hmm. And we've talked about long-term study findings. The most important thing here from this paper is that even five years after starting the two or 3% minoxidil, these people were still above their baseline. So, you know, that's what a lot of people are thinking. It's like, well, you know, maybe they plan to get a hair transplant long-term. They just need to buy themselves some time. And if you, let's say the average person starts using topical minoxidil today, they're consistent with it. Five years from now, they're going to have more hair than they did today. Mm -hmm. Now, this isn't true for everybody. Somebody's gonna comment and say, I used topical minoxidil and I've lost hair and lost ground and I believe them because there's a lot of individual variation and this yeah. is really a high level look at like averages across populations. Um, and there's some specific populations that have some limitations we'll talk about on this next slide. Um, but as far as effectiveness, what would we give minoxidil, um, oral minoxidil or topical minoxidil? Are they equivalent? What would we say on the, our Norwood scale? I would give both of them an equivalent rating of Norwood 1. Norwood 1. Yeah, maybe a 2, depending on the dose. Yeah, we're still looking for that secret juice to be a, a Norwood 0, the elusive Norwood 0 rating. Yes. So I think that's a pretty good overview of minoxidil. If people have questions, feel free to leave those there. Moving over to another medication, um, we'll just chat about the 5-alpha-reductase inhibitors. So. This is dutasteride and finasteride that we mentioned um, from that first study. Um, and these are, you know, finasteride is by far more popular, um, but these medications were another serendipitous discovery, just like minoxidil. Mm -hmm. And we just happened upon these things by accident. And they're typically used in treating enlarged prostate, um, slowing progression of prostate cancer now yes. in urology. Common. Um, and then also lower doses being used um, on-label with finasteride for hair loss and then off-label, uh, a lot of people are starting to prescribe dutasteride because of some of this data that's come out showing, hey, it is more effective, which is somewhat predictable because you see less scalp DHT and lower serum DHT mm -hmm. with the dutasteride. Yeah. So dutasteride is more effective and it has less sequela and less side effects. There is a solid amount of cl clinical evidence that shows both. So why not just use it all the time? Yeah, I should probably just switch all of my patients doing well on finasteride over to another drug because it's more effective, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
the the half-life of dutasteride can certainly be a downside, especially if there's fertility um, for both males and females um, that is desired anytime soon, especially for people on oral dutasteride. Um, we got a lot of questions about this, so we've done a post about it, and I think we've already talked about it uh, another time as well. But the half-life of dutasteride is kind of like Tylenol or even aspirin, where the first bit of it is metabolized very quickly, so it has a a biphasic or a bimodal pharmacokinetic profile. And then um, the next part of it's metabolized very slowly. So that's why if you Google it, it'll say five weeks. But if you take an extremely small dose, it will be metabolized fairly fast. So that's kind of both a strength and a weakness of it. Yeah, and that being said, I mean, dutasteride at about 0.1 milligrams, I believe was the study. Yep. And these are specially formulated gel caps. I don't believe at this time that the dry capsules that some compounding pharmacies are making yep. are as effective. I yep. mean, if I see blood work, I may be open to change my mind. I just, I haven't seen that evidence yet. Yep. But that 0.1 milligram of dutasteride is just about as effective, a little bit more so even than the standard one milligram per day of finasteride. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 0.5 is pretty standard. Some people are taking 0.5 milligrams of dutasteride once per week. And, mm -hmm. and when I'm individualizing, individualizing the dose here, I'm really looking at, you know, how aggressive does somebody want to be? People have different preferences. And then how aggressive is their androgenic alopecia that they're mm -hmm. kind of fighting against? If it's very mild, it's just a preventive thing. Like you can get by with a lot less early yes. on. Just like, you know, recurring theme in preventive medicine, it's much easier to make these changes early. And if you're intervening in the late stages, have to be much, much more aggressive. Yeah, um, the law of diminishing returns applies. So getting your maximum return with minimal side effect over a long period of time, especially with androgenic alopecia, um, that's a good segue into starting 5-alpha reductase inhibitors at different Norwood scores. Yeah, speaking of over a long period of time, this is the study that I found that has the longest follow-up period with actual you know, objective data points. So this was in a cohort of the Japanese population, Japanese men with androgenic alopecia. And in the men who started on finasteride, standard one milligram per day in this study, they continued to see improvement all the way up to about eight or nine years after starting the medication. And if you're on the opposite end of the spectrum there, you're you know, Norwood 6, Norwood 7, you see improvement for about the first year, maybe the first two years. Um, it's a more modest improvement in terms of probably the, the relative percent increase in hair density. Um, and then it starts to slowly sort of taper off and it, it kind of stabilizes. And we'll put this graphic up for people to see. Mm -hmm. But if you're looking at like Norwood 1, 2, 3, you know, they seem to respond very well and, you know, up to about five, six years out on average. So I, I thought that was really impressive and you know, one of the things to think of here is, you know, the length of a hair follicle cycle. So, you know, we know that the, um, you know, the length that women are able to grow their hair, you know, that kind of lines up with, okay, you're looking at antigen, like a growth phase, yeah. right? And we know that's not just going to be like, you know, six months, you can't grow out, you know, 20 inches of hair in six months or 12 months even. So the hair follicle cycle should be longer uh, whenever you have inflammatory conditions or a lot of DHT floating around, mm -hmm. it's just going to be shorter. That's one of the reasons that most men uh, can't uh, grow like Fabio style hair. Yep. They just don't have that long of an antigen window to do so. 
they'll end up looking you know, kind of stringy and, and not the look that most people are going for. Mm -hmm. So you know, I, I just thought that was interesting. And you know, this is basically looking at early intervention and what your, you know, I, I don't want to say your because this is a, a specific you know, ethnic background, but I think the same principle could probably be applied where you are intervening early, just as you alluded to, mm -hmm. and then you're just going to have a better outcome. And I think this is really promising for people who have maybe started and thought that their progress has plateaued after a year, two years, that, you know, even for the next five years, you can see progress on some sort of a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, if anybody has their own personal anecdotes with this, please let us know. Um, we'll see if there's been anybody on the 5-alpha reductase inhibitor for longer than this study. I've many patients that certainly have been um, with some really amazing responses given their genetic predispositions. So... Um, and also let us know how long you're able to grow your hair and perhaps we will as well. So, <laughs> um, yeah, that's a good summary of the study. Uh, another takeaway that I get from this is if you're a Norwood four or lower, then things look quite good for like long-term use. Whereas if you're not in that, if you're able to get a hair transplant, then uh, unless you're planning to become a just shave it bro, then perhaps you do consider like a hair, a hair transplant if possible or even shaving. Um, but whatever result that you would get within the first two or so years, maybe three years, is not going to get any better from this treatment and therapy. Yeah, I think it's a good way to kind of stratify, stratify you and build out your long-term plans, you know, because some people are like, well, right now I'm not in a financial position to get a hair transplant, but, you know, five years, 10 years from now, that could be very different. And kind of looking at where you fall on this chart can be very helpful. Um, so we mentioned earlier, you, know, you mentioned there's, you know, I know there's a handful of studies that show dutasteride causes less side effects than finasteride. And, and this is kind of bizarre to me. Mm -hmm. It's not incredibly well understood. I know there's some preclinical data supporting a neuroprotective effect and anti-inflammatory effect with dutasteride. But, you know, what's your theory as to why dutasteride would seem to cause less side effects, even though it is a more potent medication on paper, lowering DHT more in the serum scalp, presumably everywhere. Yeah, um, it's important to understand that the usual dosing of dutasteride for BPH is generally uh, 0.5 milligrams every single day. And that is not really a comparable dose to even five milligrams of finasteride um, for many reasons, but the main reason being that it inhibits all three isoenzymes of 5-alpha reductase. And on paper, you would think that this would be a detriment to dutasteride because your serum DHT is more likely to go lower. However, there is several papers, um, many different, I suppose, uh, correlation, but not causation of there not being, the, of post-dutasteride syndrome or dutasteride side effects being much more rare in eugonadal individuals. And my theory behind this is if you look at the three different isoenzymes, um, the concentration in different cells, specifically the intrachronology of it, as Dr. Fernand Labry would say, um, you look at the DHT in each of those buckets. So pretend that you have three different buckets here and then the serum is just the pipe that connects them. So you're not as much worried about the level of DHT in the pipe that connects them, but the level of DHT in all three buckets. So let's say you're on an equitable do dose, maybe uh, 0.5 dutasteride once a week, maybe twice a week, and one milligram of finasteride a day. Your serum DHT decreases 
So the DHT in the pipe is equally lower, but the DHT in your genital skin is much lower. The DHT in um, you know, your non-genital skin is much higher in finasteride. Say that this one's almost completely empty and this one's almost completely full in finasteride. That's gonna make it much more difficult for your body's many uh, negative and positive feedback inhibitions to alter things like androgen receptor density um, or even 5-alpha reductase activity. Um, but with dutasteride, you have relatively equal amounts. So let's say that all the buckets are halfway full. So it's an easier thing for your body to self-regulate. In addition to that, you're gonna be able to take a lower dose and get a better response while affecting the type of 5-alpha reductase that's in the liver. There's actually two types that's going to be converting your progestogenic neurosteroids. So there's a lot of different reasons why dutasteride is um, generally better tolerated. And that's just my theory on why it is. And anecdotally, we have certainly seen this as well. Yeah, and this reminds me of the dopamine wave pool, except now there are three wave pools, or I suppose you could think of it as you have you know, three hot springs and dutasteride will keep all of those at the same temperature. Yep. Uh, but if you're taking finasteride, maybe two of those are lukewarm and one is freezing cold and that's your genital skin that's freezing cold. Um, and we know that the body does adapt, like you know, dopamine is a hormone. Mm -hmm. I know some people don't think of it that way, but yep. it is, it's a neurotransmitter hormone and your body does rebalance when you have high levels or low levels. So. You know, I can imagine a situation like just like a tri-level home, you're not going to have the same temperature in each of those zones, you know, corresponding with the three, you know, um, subtypes of, you know, the three isoforms of 5-alpha mm -hmm. reductase and then the subsequent tissue expression. So I think it's a really interesting theory and it seems to match some anecdotal data. Um, but, you know, it, I don't think we're quite scientists, can't say for sure, but uh, it's one of the more compelling things that, you know, I've heard that you and I have talked extensively about too. So to talk about side effects, because we, we kind of mentioned, you know, there are side effects, but what do those things look like? I think that's the last um, point that we wanted to make about the 5-alpha reductase inhibitors. You know, what should people you know, watch for or what is common and, and who's more likely to get side effects? Mm -hmm. So there's both negative and positive side effects. For example, for dutasteride, um, potentially... Um, preventing left ventricular hypertrophy or LVH would be one of the side effects if that's something that an individual is prone to. But uh, other side effects, especially of dutasteride, basically mimic hypogonadism and mimic postpartum psychosis and postpartum depression. So postpartum psychosis and depression is related to a um, sharp decrease in what I call the progestogen pool, pregnenolone, progesterone, DHP, and THP. And we treat this with uh, IV THP for severe cases of postpartum depression, psychosis, suicidal ideation, et cetera. And um, it is possibly something that can be utilized with 5-alpha reductase inhibitors like DHP and or THP in the future. But um, you don't want to just get on a prescribing cascade. Um, in addition to that, um, uh, kind of like the, the finasteride side effect spectrum, we describe as an x-axis and a y-axis. One axis is more genitourinary side effects. One axis is more neurologic side effects, which can include an imbalance in sympathetic and parasympathetic drive, like a fight or flight, rest and digest. And then it can also include uh, things like uh, 
we just mentioned them, <laughs> postpartum psychosis, anxiety, depression, etc. So that's the way that we see it, and that's the way that, way that we kind of treat all of those things on an individual basis where there's not one specific regimen. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that earlier, well, I, I say this year, it was actually 2022, I believe, when the um, FDA has you know placed a warning label on finasteride for suicidal ideation, mm-hmm. um, just due to the post marketing attempts and you know people in the advocacy groups for post finasteride syndrome. Yep, um, it is very important to realize the potential side effects of any medication, including finasteride, including utasteride, including testosterone. Um, but uh, knowing that many people take these medications and have noticeable side effects. Some people take the medications and have unnoticeable side effects. And some people do take the medications, perhaps they're a good candidate for it, and they truly do not have any side effect. So there's people in all three groups and kind of like um, skewing uh, opinion to where uh, everybody has side effects on finasteride or nobody's side effects on finasteride um, is just kind of an example of uh, anecdotal and observer bias. Well, I suppose we should rate these medications on the Norwood scale as well. What do we rate uh, finasteride and dutasteride? I give finasteride a Norwood 1. I give dutasteride a mature hairline. (laughs) That sounds pretty good to me. Uh, I would rate them the same. All right. So next up we have topical finasteride, topical dutasteride. So... These are medications we get a lot of questions about, and of course there's less data because it's a novel formulation of a pre-existing medication. And people ask us, you know, uh, well, do if I take finasteride, will my DHT, you know, not be affected? Or if I take topical dutasteride, does that go systemic? Um, and we have some pretty clear data that topical finasteride does in fact go systemic. Um, I, I don't know that this was well known, you know, initially, but now it seems to be you know, understood. And yeah, I think there is something to it where there's less likely to be side effects from finasteride. Um, and my theory behind this is with the topical, you're bypassing the first pass effect through the mm-hmm. liver where you're gonna kick out a ton of drug metabolites that we don't know as, as much about. That, I mean, they really aren't studied you know, as well. I know in um, like the mental health sphere, some of the active metabolites of the drugs are actually the ones that have the therapeutic effects, and yep. there's some things known there. But you know, with topical finasteride, it, I don't know what a metabolite of finasteride would be. I don't know if it's been studied. So if you're bypassing that and you're using it topically, then presumably you're going to have less of that happening. So that may be a, a plausible reason for why we see less side effects with a topical formulation. Um, this study tells us that the it looks like in this case the Topical actually was able to lower DHT a little bit more than the oral. I haven't seen that reproduced. Um, The other study I saw using topical um, showed about 48%, I think, was the highest dose group. And that was a 48% reduction in serum DHT. Mm -hmm. And you still had positive changes in hair growth, um, vellus hairs, terminal hairs. Um, Typically, the, the pattern you want to see is less vellus hairs, which are the very fine hairs that um, look like baby hairs is what we call them. Mm. And more of the terminal hairs, which are you know what you think of as your normal hair that's on top of your head. Yeah. Um, topical finasteride is certainly not useless just because it goes systemic. Uh, another theory is back to the hot springs analogies instead of 
Um, changing that very, very quickly, the temperature of the springs may change a little bit more slowly, like the, the frog in a pot that slowly boils. Perhaps that has something to do with it as well. Um, we get a lot of questions regarding, so we kind of asked the two questions. Um, does topical finasteride go systemic? Yes. Does it work? Yes. Does topical dutasteride go systemic? Yes. Uh, even though it's right, right around the size that sometimes they don't go systemic, it's a very lipophilic molecule. Um, and again, this is not extremely well studied. Both topical dutasteride solution and topical dutasteride mesotherapy, which is injections, those are two different things that require two different dosings. But depending on the dose, depending on the person, depending on the thinness of the skin, depending on the lipophilicity of the skin, depending on um, how many like scales and scabs and scratches and microneedling is going on as well, um, a different dose might need changed or a different dosing protocol might need utilized. But in many cases of the um, hundreds of patients that we've had on topicals, um, for topical dutasteride, it is very common to see serum DHT not affected. However, it does go systemic. It is likely just metabolized very quickly. So, and we already talked about the half-life of dutasteride, so we don't need to go over that again. Yeah, and there is an interesting point in one of these studies of topical dutasteride. It's one of the only studies that has a lot of like uh, free access data. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the topical dutasteride is not isolated. Yep. It's mixed into the secret juice that yes. uh, I believe New Hair is the company name. But in their data, it would it points to in their data, it points to the patients admittedly only using the product two to three times per week. But despite this, they still had improvements in hair growth parameters that they were targeting. Mm -hmm. So, you know, is this because they were using multiple vectors or is this because dutasteride has a longer half-life? You know, the authors speculate it's because dutasteride has a longer half-life and they, they call it a 28-hour half-life. I, I don't know where this data comes from. Uh, there's not a citation next to it. So either they just kind of made it up or maybe they did the groundwork and did some, you know, um, in vitro research on, you know, scalp skin and seeing how long it takes to clear the DHT. Um, I don't really know, but 28 hours is the number that they picked. And it probably does last longer than something like a finasteride in the scalp yeah. if it's just following the, the standard you know, pharmacology modeling. Yep. Um, by the way, as mentioned, we did post specifically about dutasteride half-lifes with um, various sources. And the inflection point to where it changes from like a, a fast order uh, pharmacokinetic profile to slow is around a dose of 0.1 milligram orally. So that is likely different topically. And then, again, I don't think it's been studied. We haven't seen a study. Please send us the uh, study link or... Uh, PubMed ID, if you have. Yeah, that would be fantastic. So now we are on, let's see, we talked about topical finasteride. Um, oh, this was an interesting thing. This is another topical finasteride. Um, this was a, I guess, theory or an idea that the authors of this study came up with. Um, they thought that, well, if topical finasteride does not build up as much as systemic, like oral finasteride does, then maybe pregnant women can use this. And I don't think that that's a particularly great idea given the link from finasteride to male genital birth defects. 
Um, I, I would be even skeptical of the risk-benefit ratio for a topical retinoid during pregnancy. Um, but they make the case that, well, topical retinoids are class C, you know, systemic retinoids like, you know, isotretinoin are class X for pregnancy. So maybe topical finasteride could be class C. Um, I don't know where this idea was came up with, but I advise against topical finasteride and topical dutasteride for pregnant women and oral for that matter. Yep. And the topical, even for the partners of those women when they're planning to become pregnant or while they're pregnant. Yep. Um, and for the record, I also advise against topical tretinoin for pregnant ladies mm -hmm. um, out of an abundance of caution, but it just makes sense. Um, and then uh, as far as like time periods in general, stopping uh, finasteride at least 90 days before planning conception, spermatogenesis taking 60 days, and then stopping uh, dutasteride between six and 12 months before, depending on what dose you're on and depending on what uh, method of administration. Yeah, and it's probably reasonable for people to check fertility parameters with dutasteride because yep. we know three to six months after taking dutasteride, you're still gonna have, I believe it was 20 to 30% lower um, semen volume and sperm count. So, yep. you know, those metrics can be affected not just in the immediate time period you're taking the medication. So. Yep. You know, one of those considerations of why dutasteride isn't a great choice for every single patient. Yep. All right. And next we have, this is one we've got a lot of questions about. Let me make sure we haven't skipped over. Yep, let's go there. So, latanoprost. Oh, I'm sorry, this is ketoconazole. So Keto we get lots of questions about both. So, ketoconazole. Um, what is it? Um, it's a fungal, it's an antifungal medication. Mm -hmm. So why are we putting this on top of our heads? Like, I don't have fungus up there, do I? Yeah, it's an azole. I believe it's an ergosterol synthase inhibitor, um, but it has a couple different mechanisms, mechanisms of action. It can be an antiandrogen in that uh, competitive inhibition at the androgen receptor. And then also in the past, I believe we mentioned its benefits with um, as an antibacterial and an antifungal. So subclinical infections of both. Um, and it's well tolerated. Um, it can help volumize the hair as well, but it can also make it frizzy. Yeah, it, and the studies have been done with 2%, but there are now a ton of people um, using 1% over the counter. Mm -hmm. The uh, Nizoral brand, which I just learned from you last week, that not all Nizoral is actually containing ketoconazole. So yeah, that's infuriating. <laughs> it is, uh, but it's a pro tip for anybody out there listening who has Nizarel, make sure that you're actually getting the, the medication that you want from that. So 2% ketoconazole, and you really wanna be leaving this on your scalp for five, probably 10 minutes is even better so that you have more absorption into the skin and potentially more of that competitive binding of the androgen receptor. Now, is it gonna outcompete every single piece of DHT there? Is it gonna you know, bind that strongly? I don't think so, but it does have a, an effect size and I think it's a useful adjunct. It doesn't take any more time. The prescription medication is incredibly cheap. It's only a few dollars for a bottle of the shampoo. Yep. It might be cheaper than the shampoo you're using right now. Yep. So I think it's a good option for people as an adjunct, but I don't think it's the like, foundation of anybody's, you know, hair loss prevention protocol, but it can certainly be useful as an adjunct. Yep. I think most people put it on for 10 to 15 minutes. Um, that way you let it you know, soak into the scalp a bit. And most people do not do this every day. Some people do, 
but I know if I do it every day, then I get incredibly frizzy hair. So I try not to do it too often. Um, there is a product that I use that's combined with topical caffeine that we can briefly touch on, also topical antiandrogen. Talked about it with Huberman. Um, we've got a lot of questions about it, um, but it's just another topical antiandrogen, kind of like ketoconazole. Again, uh, low risk, um, likely clinically significant benefit. So why not add it in? I use a product that has ketoconazole and topical caffeine and actually uh, essential oil of peppermint, peppermint oil, I love the smell. Um, that's the um, Intelligent Shop shampoo, but there's a lot of different good ones. Um, if you wanna get your most bang for the buck, the, probably the biggest bang for the buck is just the prescription 2% ketoconazole. Yeah, I would have to agree. Um, and you know, while we're on the topic of um, the ketoconazole and 2%, here's you know, study findings. So this first, this first picture here is actually the minoxidil group. So this was actually female pattern hair loss. There's not a ton of data specifically looking at this as an isolated variable in androgenic alopecia, but in female pattern hair loss, it, it's apparent that androgens do play some role or at least ketoconazole has some positive effect. So this is minoxidil. This is a pretty impressive recovery here. Um, and this is only after six months. So from photo A to photo D, you're looking at six months. And then if you go down to the ketoconazole, you see a, a pretty impressive recovery as well. Now, this obviously isn't the same person. Yep. I don't think their hair loss was as severe at baseline, but you see clear improvements over six months. Um, and this wasn't a like telogen effluvium. This is female pattern hair loss, mm -hmm. which androgens you know are involved in to some degree. So... Um, it's reassuring to see some progress like that and say, hey, this actually is an effective treatment. And I personally really like it when the authors include these photographs in mm -hmm. their studies because a lot of the information like latanoprost we talked about, a lot of times these studies are just saying hair increased in thickness and density. And yes. I have no clue if that's one more hair per square centimeter or 50 more mm -hmm. hairs per square centimeter. Yeah, um, including the objective data is very important, especially because hopefully someday all these will be included in more meta-analyses and systematic reviews. Another thing we love to see as Alec, um, again, our friend Alec McCarthy loves to emphasize histopaths, so scalp biopsies, and also if possible, skin microbiome testing. Doris Day um, likes to emphasize that as well. It would be very interesting to see if um, people have subclinical infections of bacteria or fungi that respond well to ketoconazole. So eventually we will know that. Um, those scientists out there, please study it. Yeah, I've seen some theories where you know, people may be topically applying probiotics or using a probiotic shampoo mm -hmm. to create a more, or I guess a less hostile scalp microbiome for hair loss. I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility that it Agreed. could be an adjunct. So you know, a lot of very exciting things going on out there. Mm -hmm. So latanoprost, I guess we can chat about that just a bit. So this is a prostaglandin analog. Um, was this one another serendipitous discovery? Because I want to say that I remember it that way. Yeah. So this is you know an eye drop that's used to decrease intraocular pressure in yes. glaucoma. And then you know we see you know, particularly women are probably the ones that notice this that their eyelashes are becoming long and luscious. Yes. And then from there we had uh, the development of things like Latisse, yep. um, which is you know, there's latanoprost, mataprost that are put in compounded into some of these topical hair loss solutions now. Mm -hmm. And these are the studies that I they don't have like the objective in data points. We just know that they do lead to some improvement. Okay. 
So you have less vellus hairs, more terminal hairs, um, and then you have an increase in you know, density and coverage and thickness and those sorts of metrics. So I don't know how potent they are, but they do work. And if you're using a you know, fancy compounded topical and you're using a growth agonist as well, then you know, why not add in latanoprost? Could there possibly be any downside? There certainly could be. So with latanoprost, um, there is potentially, I believe, a blood pressure um, change that could be affected. And then um, you can also spill it in other areas, other skin areas, and grow hair in other areas that is not where you do not want to grow hair at. So that's kind of, uh, I believe it's well known for Latisse. So you want to be very careful if your topical solution includes latanoprost. Um, I was gonna mention another serendipitous discovery was with sildenafilor Viagra, which I believe was also originally a blood pressure medication, <laughs> but um, they noticed, well, first they noticed uh, uh, sexual health changes as well, um, easier erections, but they also noticed growth of eyebrow hair. And um, occasionally if someone is at risk of like in tissue hypoxia or whatnot, then perhaps a low dose of Tadalafil is a better choice than sildenafil. But oddly enough, sildenafil, which has a much shorter half-life, was found to uh, grow thicker, bushier eyebrow hair. Yeah, that's interesting. So are you suggesting that there is erectile tissue in the eyebrows or that it's just improving blood flow and nourishing those hair follicles better? Just the latter. Just the latter. Yeah. So I, I think that's enough about the latanoprost. Um, let's see. We talked about caffeine a bit. Um, do we need to dive into, you know, why that works or um, what people might expect from that? Because this is another one where I've seen, you know, people applying a caffeine solution and it leads to those sort of non-specific effects, but a general improvement in like hair growth and hair quality. Yeah, um, probably to some degree a topical anti-androgen. They may also have um, other anti-inflammatory effects. It kind of goes back to the um, theories behind how much of hair loss is inflammatory related. Yes, if you do a like a scalp biopsy in an area that has androgenic alopecia, you'll certainly see like scar tissue and type 1 collagen, as you mentioned, and inflammation. But is that the chicken or the egg or somewhere in between? Probably somewhere in between. Yeah. So how do we rank these things? We have, let's say, caffeine, latanoprost, ketoconazole, 2% shampoo. How many Norwoods are these medications getting? For all of them except ketoconazole, Norwood 4. Maybe a Norwood 3. For ketoconazole, I would give it a Norwood 2, but mostly just because some people are particularly good candidates for it. Yeah, I like that. So Norwood 2 for 2% ketoconazole. Um, and on the topic of inflammation, yeah, what about these low-potency corticosteroids that are being added into these solutions sometimes. I had a really hard time finding anything relating specifically to androgenic alopecia. Yep. Uh, and that's because we have a lot of like alopecia areata and other conditions that respond well to corticosteroids. So it makes it really hard to find those results. There may be a study out there, but I certainly wasn't able to come across it. But with the inflammatory you know, response that's seen in androgenic alopecia, Clearly, you know, correcting that inflammation is going to have some effect. You know, is a long-term use of a corticosteroid the right choice? 
I suspect probably not. Probably not. But if I'm putting this like, okay, what is the right patient for this? It's someone who is like clearly has an inflamed scalp. They're like psoriasis. Yeah, it's, you know, no. They have some other eczema. atopic diseases, exactly like psoriasis, asthma. Um, and then they may even have some, so some people they'll notice when they go on like finasteride or dutasteride. It's like, oh yeah, my, I used to be always itching my scalp and you know, I'm not doing that. I used to have really oily hair and I'm not doing that. So, you know, maybe for those patients at the beginning of their plan, you know, a couple months of a topical course, course steroid yep. might have a small effect, but it's not something I'd want people on long-term mm -hmm. just because there are negative effects on skin health when you're applying a corticosteroid long-term. Yep. And if you're applying a corticosteroid, it's going to be like fertilizer for a fungus that's growing there. Yep. So you might end up needing that ketoconazole. Yeah, that's quite likely. Uh, that's one thing that I've changed in my practice is um, stopping long-term corticosteroid uh, adjuncts or compounds in with other medications. It also, like, it's well known that corticosteroids, especially at higher potency, can thin the skin. And I believe it also would increase the risk of absorption for topical dutasteride. So probably a lot of reasons to um, avoid long-term use, but that being said, um, we have seen some phenomenal results of people who, when they first go on a hair loss prevention regimen, um, incorporating a uh, corticosteroid. Yeah, and I think part of this is now there's a lot more options available. Like people aren't just compounding the kitchen sink because you would have like six or seven ingredients and these pharmacies would just add in a steroid there because helps hair growth, decreases inflammation. And now I think it's starting to get a little bit more refined. So it's mm -hmm. really good to have more options and really being able to pick exactly what formulation you want for a given patient. So yep. I say we give topical corticosteroids for the non-autoimmune hair loss, a Norwood 4. Mm -hmm. Agreed. So let's talk about microneedling. Um, I, I guess we can talk about derma rolling too. Um, we can talk about uh, the stamps. Yeah, I've seen some of those devices out there. Um, there's all sorts of ways that people are poking holes in their head to Laser. try, and, yeah, <laughs> to try and damage the scalp, stimulate healing, and, and grow some hair. So, you know, what is the science behind this, and you know, does it work? Yeah. So, there's a couple different benefits of microneedling. One is it can be used as a delivery mechanism for things like neuromodulator that we discussed earlier. Another thing is that if it gets deep enough, um, and even if you have a thin scalp, probably at least one millimeter, talk to your healthcare provider, of course, but maybe up to 1.5 millimeters wouldn't be um, that unusual. Um, it's going to help stimulate normal collagen synthesis and growth and also uh, blood flow. So um, there's a lot of different benefits to microneedling. Um, the uh, like, other theory behind it is any damage is also going to recruit things like fibroblast growth factors. Um, it's going to make more leaky capillaries. Well, obviously, leaky capillaries, if you notice that you're <laughs> having pinprick bleeding. And when you have those leaky capillaries, what's leaking? Plasma. That happens to be plate, essentially platelet-rich plasma. So you're leaking your own platelet-rich plasma across your scalp as you microneedle. Um, not to get too off onto a tangent, but um, that's likely why it works kind of similarly to platelet-rich plasma. Um, it, it, it can be kind of a pain to do so, and the frequency is something that's often discussed and not exactly well characterized what is the optimal frequency at this point. Yeah, I believe most of the literature is using 1.5 millimeter, and 
to the data that I've seen doesn't suggest to the point of bleeding, but to scalp erythema, which means mm -hmm. scalp redness. So the, the skin is it's definitely not going to be comfortable. It's not like a scalp massage. Nope. Um, but do you have to use 1.5 millimeters to get there? I, I don't think so because there's a large variation in scalp thickness, yes. just like you mentioned. So when we're looking at the data with microneedling, it's like, I was kind of surprised to see the magnitude at which this increased hair count. So this is just, you know, one of the papers that we found here, but this was 12 weeks, which is very quick, right? So that's three months, less than three months. Mm -hmm. And people were using you know, minoxidil or using minoxidil plus microneedling. And minoxidil alone, you probably at the three month mark, you're seeing about a 20% increase in volume. Um, in this study that correlated to about 22 more hairs per square centimeter. Um, and then whenever they added in microneedling, they saw an increase of 91.4 more hairs per square centimeter. And to put this in context, now we may have mentioned this at the beginning of the show. If we didn't, I apologize, but the average number of hairs that somebody has per square centimeter is 124 to 200. So if you're adding 91 more hairs back into that square centimeter, that's a really robust result. That's gonna be yeah. at least uh, 40, if not 50% increase in density, depending yep. on where somebody's starting from. Yeah, um, this was a particularly fantastic result. So um, even if it was half that much, then it would be certainly worth it to consider microneedling. I suppose essentially, especially if you're on minoxidil. The vehicle group here, I believe, was minoxidil only. Yeah, yeah but they compared it to the minoxidil. So I mean, even microneedling without minoxidil for those that don't tolerate it. Yeah, still has some benefit for all the things that you mentioned at the outset as far as stimulating those sort mm -hmm. of regenerative processes, mm -hmm. which you know, can be kind of a tricky word when we're talking yep. about like the PRP-like properties. Um, but basically, I would put it in the bucket that I've started using of like, you know, helping to prevent system decline. So mm -hmm. like thinking of your scalp skin as a, a body system and then preventing that from declining in function and you know, its function in this case. In addition to being like skin barrier, um, growing hair. Yep. We love to talk about things that you can stack with microneedling other than minoxidil. Um, various peptides, um, not in all formulations, so likely not a foam if you're microneedling. Um, you want things that are not going to cause an infection or irritation of the skin. So, um, but several peptides that are kind of like growth agonists, for example, GHK copper peptide, or BPC-157 would be interested, interesting. And then a, uh, a neuromodulator that's a small enough particle size to go in as well. Um, those things would likely be something that would be done at your doctor's office. Yeah, and that's one of those things, like there's a ton of companies that sell, you know, hair loss peptides and GHK. Mm -hmm. It's used in cosmetics you know, yep. all the time over the counter. But I haven't seen particularly robust results when people have been using this. But mm -hmm. um, I also haven't seen people use like pharmacy grade, higher potency GHK. Yep. Pair that with you know microneedling specifically because um, you're just going to have better absorption. I mean, you'll have better absorption of your you know vitamin C serum for your you know, face if you're using a little bit of microneedling to to drive that in, or even if you're doing that beforehand. Mm -hmm. um, the vitamin C is going to burn like alcohol probably. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's causing an inflammatory reaction there. Yep. So I think those are really interesting things that you know, people probably haven't heard before. Um, mm -hmm. So 
what would we give microneedling in terms of effectiveness? Is it a, on the Norwood scale, what are we looking at? Yeah, it's a Norwood one. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty effective. By the way, on that topic, a lot of people talk about the big three for hair loss. And um, microneedling is likely one of the big three for hair loss. It used to be ketoconazole, minoxidil, and finasteride. But perhaps it's uh, that big three is kind of morphing. Maybe you add it into a big five, you add in testosterone, you add in microneedling. Yeah, so perhaps we could see a, a rearrangement where now the big three is dutasteride, microneedling, and minoxidil. Yeah. So there's a new champion. I agree. All right, and going back to inf inflammation a little bit, um, there was a study that came out last year uh, about N-acetylcysteine. Um, and when I think about that, I think about the increase in the serum glutathione that you can get from you know, giving NAC, which is in that interesting category of both a medication and a supplement. Uh, and hopefully that's where NMN lands. You know, I know there's a lot of people have been talking about this and asking me about this, and I really don't know exactly what direction it's going. But as an aside, uh, anyway, N-acetylcysteine was found to give us a non-specific endpoint, but a general improvement in hair count. And N-acetylcysteine has been used in other hair loss, um, hair loss treatments, not for androgenic alopecia, um, but for trichotillomania, where mm -hmm. people are kind of have this um, under the umbrella of OCD tendency to kind of pick and, and pull and, and you know, damage their hair. And it's been shown to be effective for that as well as, you know, some other, you know, sort of OCD type behaviors. Um, some people will, you know, take N-acetylcysteine and kind of have a dysphoric reaction to that, you know, which I think is kind of interesting. And, you know, maybe they do like their kind of like organization and their methodical way of doing things. And the N-acetylcysteine will kind of, you know, disrupt that homeostasis that they have that's actually serving them well. Mm -hmm. So I think that may account for some of the you know, side effects of there can be side effects even with something as benign as something that increases your glutathione levels. But uh, the dose for this was 600 milligrams three times per day. So I, I don't know exactly what the adherence looked like in the study. Most people are not going to take something three times a day, mm -hmm. but you could probably still do 1,200 milligrams once per day and have some effect size because that's going to increase glutathione as well. Mm -hmm. So I think this was really interesting and kind of highlights, you know, when we were talking about you know, topical corticosteroids, you know, really maybe you know, throwing in some N-acetylcysteine at the beginning of the treatment instead of a topical corticosteroid, you know, makes a lot of sense as we're sitting down and kind of reviewing all the data now. So I think that's something for people to consider because it's generally very well tolerated, um, doesn't smell particularly good. So people buy N-acetylcysteine and they're opening up and they smell sulfur, rotten eggs. That's to be expected. You didn't get a rotten batch. Yeah, I would give N-acetylcysteine a Norwood 3, uh, partly because perhaps it would benefit someone for a different health reason as well. And um, then their hair will kind of benefit secondarily to that. Yeah, it's a good way to look at it. I love the, the two birds, one stone scenarios that we run into on occasion. Mm -hmm. So heading over to... Another one medication we get asked about a lot is topical tretinoin. So we kind of touched on this earlier. We're talking about topical retinoids, which you know, tretinoin is one. I don't know if there's any specific data on brand name Differin or Adapalene mm -hmm. on androgenic alopecia, but they have a similar you know, effect, essentially, when you're looking at skin wrinkles, skin aging, and things like that. It tends to be a little bit less irritating when we're talking about the Adapalene. 
Uh, but tretinoin has been used in a number of trials, um, improving the efficacy of minoxidil. Um, and also in this study was used alone and even stimulated some hair growth when it was used as you know, just an isolated treatment. So a standalone versus just being something that's an adjunct. So I thought that was particularly interesting. Mm -hmm. And the one thing I highlighted here was one female subject with pronounced alopecia for more than 20 years had regrowth of hair using only tretinoin over a period of 18 months. So we found a hyper responder to tretinoin. So, mm -hmm. you know, this is where you get into sort of, you know, the precision genetics of hair loss and, you know, people will do things like the trico test and there's a number of SNPs and actually, you know, 23andMe will tell you about some of these when you're looking at the data, uh, like net, are you, you know, at risk for hair loss or not? And there's ways that you know, these medications are more or less likely to help you. And mm -hmm. I think we touched on that a bit in the first half of the episode. But I, I think tretinoin is really interesting. The potential downside there is, you know, scalp irritation. You know, personally, I, I can't even use tretinoin consistently um, for my face because of the, the skin redness, the irritation and flaking. Perhaps that's because I've started too high of a concentration or because, you know, I haven't used it through and gone through the shedding phase. But for me, I, I just prefer to use the adapalene because mm -hmm. I can use that and I, I don't experience those side effects. So what uh, would you add to the, the discussion of tretinoin? Um, is it for everybody? Obviously not pregnant women, as we talked about earlier, yep. but who, who do you think benefits the most and any idea why you know, one person would be a hyper responder to tretinoin like this? People with especially oily scalps and skin would likely benefit more. Um, as far as a hyper responder, um, I suppose you could say that um, someone that concurrently struggles with androgenic acne could be a slightly better candidate. So perhaps people with PCOS or obviously androgenic acne. Um, on that note, if they hyper-responded to tretinoin, um, perhaps they would hyper-respond to something like clascodrome as well. Um, so I guess for that reason, I give tretinoin a Norwood 3. Yeah, Norwood 3 for tretinoin makes sense. Um, clascodrome is an interesting agent. I think it's being evaluated in androgenic, in androgenic alopecia, mm -hmm. um, but it's actually already out for you know hormonal acne, um, which is a really broad term if you think about everything that's considered a hormone. Yeah, there, there's not really acne that's hormonal and not hormonal. That's one of the main reasons why it's actually not, it, like it's, it works, it has good enough efficacy to get FDA approval. And we do use it from time to time. But if you have jawline acne, often it is not going to improve it all the way because most of the time it's multifactorial. Mm -hmm. Yep, and that's probably something that you don't need a genetic test to take. Um, that's why in general, you consider the oiliness of the skin, it, what drying agent you need, usually in the form of a topical retinoid, and if there is a bacterial component as well, or um, another component. So for example, diet has a huge effect on acne, not just because it's modulation of IGF-1, but um, also because of the other effects. Um, an interesting thing about sebaceous glands is even DHEA, which is generally considered the pawn on the chessboard of hormones, a very weak androgen. I believe it's in sebaceous glands where in females, almost 50% of DHEA is quickly converted to DHT. So um, in those cases, perhaps the topical dutasteride would actually work fairly well if it gets into the sebaceous gland. Not to go off on a rabbit trail too much, that just goes to show that um, 
just like androgenic alopecia or even um, other types of alopecia, there's most commonly more than one factor at play. Another um, kind of like rule of thumb you can ask yourself is, well, let's say you do all the evaluations and none of the genetics look like this individual is prone to androgenic alopecia whatsoever. But if they're a male and they have um, like eugenadal levels of male hormones systemically, they are just going to be much more likely just because of that compared to a female um, with the like same presentation. Absolutely. And I was going to say there when, if you have all the genetics in front of you and the clinical picture doesn't match, does that just mean that the patient is lying to you? <laughs> yeah, obviously not. Yeah. So, I mean, you have to like laugh about some of these things sometimes and use, you know, common sense when you have the clinical picture that doesn't match up because I mean, lab areas even, they do happen. So I've heard you talk about this before, you know, women you know, birth control and the different, I think there's four generations now of yeah. oral contraceptives. So some women, um, I, I guess girls at this point, whenever they start having, you know, irregular periods or acne or thinning hair, um, they get put on an oral contraceptive and that seems to solve a lot of problems and it, mm -hmm. they're not always a terrible intervention. Uh, but what are some of the underlying reasons for that? It's, it's always fun to dive a little bit deeper and say, okay, well, this has these effects, but you know, why is that? And, you know, talking about why things may be different when you have different types of, you know, estrogens and then different types of progestins as well. Mm -hmm. So this is one of the conversations that I particularly love. Um, sometimes I joke and I say that I wish that uh, patients were as picky about their compound selection for their synthetic estrogen and their synthetic progestin as uh, many men are for their compound selection of their synthetic androgen. So just like synthetic androgens, the fitness community loves, and actually we actually love talking about um, different pharmacodynamic effects, interactions with aromatase, interactions with glucocorticoid receptors. Does this compound aromatize? Is its aromatized product uh, active? We love talking about the same exact thing with oral contraceptives. So you, um, there's combined oral contraceptives, which have a, a synthetic estrogen and a synthetic progestogen known as synthetic progestins. And um, we'll put a chart up here too, and someone can, uh, this is just the most common synthetic progestins. There's only two synthetic estrogens that I know of, um, ethanol estradiol, and then there's a brand new one um, that is uh, potentially useful as well. But um, the synthetic estrogen and progestin itself, they have a common theme. Both of them tend to increase SHBG pretty high. Um, and the stronger the estrogen, the more of an increase in both SHBG and platelets you get. That's also going to affect blood clot risk. This podcast is not about oral contraceptives, but um, just looking at its effect on um, the SHBG, that is going to decrease your free androgens circulating. And SHBG also binds to the androgen receptor in the scalp. Um, our friend Ben Barros likes to talk about this as well. So it has a lot of a regulatory mechanism, um, whether it is bound or not bound to an estrogen. So you think, well, higher SHBG is always better, but that is not necessarily the case. It usually is for hair, but you have to take into account all the other systems of the body. If we didn't have to do that, then hair loss prevention would be much more simple. Yeah, just give everyone ethanol estradiol and we've solved mm -hmm. hair loss. 
Yeah. Uh, but no, I, th I think oral contraceptives are really interesting. And there's a number of different things that have been looked at here. Um, and I, I don't have the studies pulled up because this isn't necessarily an oral contraceptive podcast. But some of the things you can see, you know, actually, you know, compared to certain times of the menstrual cycle, you, you may have better like object recognition if you're on an oral contraceptive. Yep. And um, in terms of like 3D image rotation, which is you know, stereotypically thought of as a more, you know, male dominant skill, mm -hmm. um, you know, more engineers that are male in that field. Um, when you see women who are taking contraceptives, you'll see an improvement in that sort of ability to manipulate a, a 3D object in space. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's really interesting. It probably has to do with the androgenicity of the progestin that they're using. Yep. So probably... I, I would suspect, just speculating, we're not going to see that with drosperidone, but we might see that with levonorgestrel mm -hmm. um, because drosperidone is anti-androgenic. Mm -hmm. Both bind the androgen receptor, and just because it binds the androgen receptor does not mean it activates it. So there's like a competitive inhibitor, and then there's also allosteric inhibitors, which bind the receptor, but at a different spot that it's its normal binding spot. And... Um, synthetic progestins often do both in multiple systems. So again, we'll try to find that chart that shows its interaction with cortisol's binding globulin, um, kind of like SHBG, but for cortisol, um, and uh, only bioidentical progesterone binds it, of course. And then also its interaction with the glucocorticoid receptor. And at some point, um, we'll just do uh, another full podcast on uh, oral contraceptives, or perhaps it will just be on synthetic hormones in general. That would be fun. Yeah, I was going to suggest the same thing. I mean, you know, how to design your best oral contraceptive. Um, but maybe for like a, a wrap-up point here, we could talk about, you know, the ultimate no-maintenance hair loss stack would be, you know, somebody, like at the very outset we talked about, 0.5 milligrams of dutasteride, mm -hmm. 5 milligrams of oral minoxidil, if somebody is aggressively receding, and is a good candidate and tolerates the medications well. Mm -hmm. What about a non-hormonal stack? So something that's not going to be systemic, what would you do or what would you put someone who is like, let's just say aggressively thinning, but they absolutely do not want to affect their serum DHT. They've read too many horror stories or talked to people that had bad experiences. Mm -hmm. They're not really, they're not willing to risk the you know, small chance. They said, no way, but I'll do anything else. Yeah, very low dose of daily topical dutasteride or even three times a week topical dutasteride, like 0.1% or less, if possible. If they're not open to that, then that's fair. You add in your ketoconazole and then you might as well add in your topical caffeine as well. Um, and then microneedling for sure, along with a neuromodulator, like incobotulinum toxin or daxibotulinum toxin, um, uh, ideally injected. And might as well inject it with some PRP, maybe even reconstitute it with some GHK copper, uh, you know, or other things that we have ideas that we will discuss down the road. Yeah, yeah. I think I think we could even do a whole podcast on just designing a you know, hair loss prevention protocol. Like, when should you start thinking about it? I mean, if you're 20 years old and you have no thinning, do you even need to do anything? Should you wait till you're 25? These are questions that I'm sure we'll get. Probably we'll dive into in an AMA hair loss episode, which. I'm sure we'll get a ton of comments and questions mm -hmm. after this comes out. Yep. Please leave all your comments in the section below. Uh, we'd love to answer them and do a, a follow-up Q&A on this. This is one of our favorite topics. Um, I suppose a thousand foot view on hair loss prevention 
It's kind of similar to HRT management or natural hormone optimization. Um, because a lot of these things do go systemic, um, your healthcare provider should be adept at all the organ systems in the body and know the effects, both positive and negative, on all of them. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good take-home point for people. And you know, just finding someone who's willing to collaborate with you for your unique healthcare goals. Some people have zero hair or hair prevention, hair loss prevention goals. Uh, and some people, it's very important to them. It may be tied to, like, let's say somebody's an actor or an actress. You know, that mm -hmm. could be very important for them relative to someone who is a just shave it bro. And they yeah. really could care less if they have hair or don't have hair. So let us know how many hairs you have per square centimeter in the comments. And thank you for listening. Thank you, guys. Thank you.